0: We are in a series, and that series is on First Peter. We started this a while back, took a little break uh, from it, and now we're back to it. Last week came back for the first time in quite a while. And just as a review, First Peter tells us that when faith gets difficult, we can indeed still stand firm. Not just life, but faith itself. When faith gets difficult, First Peter tells us we can stand firm. It tells us that a living hope is an active hope. It tells us that a godly life is more compelling than persuasive lips. And last week we looked at this, division brings damage, but unity brings blessing. I don't think I have to explain this. I think it will make sense right away when we say it. Suffering rarely feels good. Suffering of any kind rarely feels feels good. Now, I put rarely in there because I know as a communicator, there's always this slim chance that somebody has a contrary view. So there may be somebody out there that actually enjoys suffering and they're sick and twisted and need help with a counselor. <laughs> suffering rarely feels good. It could be mental suffering. It could be emotional. It could be physical in nature. Rarely does it ever feel good though. And I'm not talking about just the trite sense of feel. I'm talking about down in the depths of your soul. Rarely does it feel good. But here's the interesting thing. Suffering often brings good. There are many of us here that would say yes and amen. We've got a testimony to that. We'd rise up and say, let me tell you how God has used some difficult things in my life in order to bring about some good. And I bet all of us would say, would I want to go through those exact circumstances again? No. But would I want the result? Yes. And so maybe going through that has been worth it. The pain I didn't enjoy, don't want the pain again, wouldn't wish it on anyone else. But God, thank you for what you've done in me and even through me as a result. Suffering rarely feels good. Suffering often brings good. Today's passage is looking specifically at this, but there's one disclaimer we need to make right on the front end of this. When I am using the term suffering right now, when Peter is using it in this context in chapter 3 as he closes out this chapter, um, he, he didn't know he was closing the chapter. That came much later on with some people that decided to divide it up that way. But as Peter's closing out this little section right here, he is not referring to suffering in the general sense simply because we live in a fallen world. You understand that, correct? We live in a fallen world, which means that bad things are going to happen every day to someone. Again, this could be in the physical realm. This could be psychological, emotional, etc. He's not referring to just the general sense of, of suffering because we live in a fallen world that has all of the effects of sin that have entered into the equation. In other words, that is common to everyone all across the globe who has ever lived. Everyone experiences that. What he's referring to in this is specifically suffering that comes about as a result of right living. Righteous living. Following Christ. And then in turn, there are those who then bring upon some level of suffering because uh, uh, someone has been obedient uh, to the call of God, to the to the law of God, to the ways of the Lord, that's what he's referring to here. Suffering has done a number, and I'm talking about the general sense on a large number of people. Some respond; uh, we respond in different ways. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Ted Turner uh, grew up in a, a home that was uh, very religious, according to his uh, interview that he gave in uh, 2003 uh, with Michael Eisner. He uh, has been noted for saying many things about Christianity over the years, Uh, uh, spending a great deal of time in Atlanta. We got to hear uh, a lot of it. He uh, once said in 1990 that Christianity is a religion for losers. He told Michael Eisner, get this, I was very religious when I was young. I was a born-again Christian. In fact, I was born again seven times, including once by Billy Graham. I mean, I know it inside and out. Anybody else prayed that prayer 31 times, just to be sure? Ted went on to say that he lost his faith when he watched his sister suffer from a rare form of lupus at the age of 20. For five years, he said, I prayed 30 minutes every day for God to do something and he didn't. A kind and loving God wouldn't let my sister suffer so much. I don't want to have anything else to do with you, referring to God. A author... Harriet Schiff lost her son. And later on, she uh, put some very helpful words into a book called The Bereaved Parent. She tells the story in that book that when her son had died, he died during an operation to, con- uh, to correct a congenital uh, heart malfunction. Uh, her pastor came alongside of her, spent some time with her in the hospital. He said this, I know that this is a painful time for you, but I know that you will get through it all right because... God never sends us more of a burden than we can bear. God only let this happen to you because he knows that you are strong enough to handle it. And her response, it is marvelous and wise. She looked at the pastor and drew the logical conclusion. She said this, so if I were only a weaker person, then Robbie would still be alive We respond in different ways to things that happen to us. When things happen that we wouldn't wish on anyone, we respond in different ways. Ted Turner went one route. Harriet Schiff went another route. We all will have a choice to make at some point where we will go. Suffering rarely feels good, but suffering often will bring good. Here's the ultimate question for us today how do you plan to handle suffering do you plan to deal with it when it comes or do you want to have a plan before you get there to know how it is that you'll respond cuz let me assure you of this when difficult things come into our life one of the last times that we ought to make be making decisions is in the moment we ought to have something planned beforehand share this often with uh, married couples, how do you plan to handle when your marriage gets really, really difficult? Because if you just plan to handle it in the moment, your emotions are going to be so heavy. Your mind is not going to make rational decisions. Have a plan before you get there. Years and years ago, watching other uh, marriages, um, some that we we love dearly, some other folks, we watched them. And uh, Judith and I determined way, way on early in our marriage, if our marriage ever gets to the place where we, either one of us wants to walk away, our first response is to go to the elders of the church and say, will you help us? Now, they may not be able to help us, but we want to go to them first and say, we will do whatever it is that you tell us to do. What is your plan to handle suffering? If you have your Bibles, and if you're able, would you stand in honor of God's Word as we read from chapter 3? I'll begin reading in verse 13. We'll make our way all the way through the end of the chapter. Peter says this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. "'Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, "'in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison "'because they formerly did not obey. "'When God's patience waited in the days of Noah "'while the ark was being prepared, "'in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. "'Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, "'not as removal of dirt from the body, "'but as an appeal to God for a good conscience.'" through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been submitted, uh, uh, subjected to him. You may be seated. Now, there is a lot in here, and I assure you, if this is the first time that you've heard verses 19 through 22, you probably went, what? We'll get there, and I don't think that... Uh, anyway, we'll get there, and I think you'll... Um, uh, I think you'll see the heart of what he's getting at is right on the front end. So back up into uh, verse 13. He says this in verses 13 and 14, you will be blessed. This is a promise from God. You will be blessed if what? Who? Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? The term he uses to start out this in the original language is normally translated, and this one could probably translate therefore, the ESV says, it is now. In light of what he has said, just preceding and quoting the book of Isaiah, he comes in and says, so, now, since this is the case, can I ask you a question? Who out there can actually harm you? You say, well, David, I can think of about a million people, probably 7 billion people, in fact, that could actually harm you. What's he referring to? Harm. He's not saying who can can just bring some sort of damage to you psychologically, physically, etc. He's not saying that. He's saying in comparison to God, who can actually bring harm to you that is permanent? Now think with me for just a minute. This is when it gets really, really good to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus says, that there are things that we experience here on earth that matter. They, they, they make a difference. God has called us to live in such a manner that we enjoy this life, um, et cetera. But there is a life to come that is a reward. And that life to come is going to be absent. He's already said in this book, absent of any sin, of any trouble, uh, of, um, of anything negative at all. It's going to be absent of that. And do you know how long that's going to last? Our minds don't comprehend this, but it is actually going to last forever. When I say forever, I go, I don't know what that means. I know it in theory. I know that it never stops, but there's nothing that I've experienced that never stopped. It is going to be uh, more than you can ask or imagine. It, it, you can't fathom what it's going to be like, but it's going to be incredible. So in light of all of the eternity, that who is actually going to bring some damage that is going to cause you To abandon the faith. What damage could be done to you right now that in light of eternity could cause you to turn your back, leave the Lord, and pursue a different direction? This right here is a temporal life. I don't know how many uh, days you have left. You may have 60 years. You may have six days. You may have six hours. I have no idea how much time you have left or I have left. But I do know this, it's limited. And there is coming a time in which I'm going to spend the rest of eternity. So who can actually bring harm to you? Say it this way. Where does your hope lie? Does your hope lie in this life, giving you everything that you long for? Or does it lie in something that you can't see, feel, taste, or touch just yet? This requires faith. This just requires sight. So how far do you want to look? Who can bring harm to you? A lot of folks can swing. A lot of folks can bite your heel. Going all the way back into Genesis. God, speaking, talked about this seed of the woman who is going to deal with the seed of the snake. And the seed of the snake was going to bite the heel of the seed of the woman. But he was going to crush the head of the seed of the snake. Now, the rhetorical question is asked about him. However, look at this, there's a condition when he says in there, he says, who can harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Here's the condition, if you are zealous, zealous means an eager pursuit of, if you are zealous, for walking in the ways of God, for, for doing what it is that God has asked, for walking right alongside of God and saying, God, I can't figure this thing out, but I do know that I want you to live in me. I want you to live through me. I want you to do great things in my life, around my life, etc. For those who are eager, who have their hearts set on God, use me. Then you're probably going to have that perspective of who can harm me. But if that's not your perspective, it's going to be difficult to get there. Suffering will pursue you. You don't have to go looking for it. You don't have to, to pray for it. You don't have to, uh, to create circumstances in which suffering is going to come. Suffering will pursue you. I believe what Peter is telling us is this, that we, in fact, should just pursue walking in obedience to God. And then God is going to bless us even more than others can harm us. In other words, the eternal blessings are far going to outweigh the temporal suffering. Who can harm you? Next verse, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Even if, you, even if we suffer specifically for obedience to God, then we will be blessed. What does that blessing mean? It likely does not mean what I would like for it to mean. I would like for it to be that every time someone in the world who, is, uh, who does not uh, follow uh, Christ, who, who uh, does not like God, etc., every time they think a bad thought, every time they say a, a, a word, every time they uh, uh, treat me, and so, I would love it if I got some type of financial reward. That's what I would like for this passage to say. You are going to be blessed. I'll take an M X card, God. I'll take homes, whatever, however materially you want to bless me, Lord, is just fine with me. It's not what he's saying. What we're going to be blessed with is all the things that God values, that deep down inside you value too. Peace, contentment, courage, stamina, a deeper abiding faith. These are the things that he's going to bless us with. Suffering's coming. It's going to pursue you. You don't have to pursue it. Pursue righteousness. Pursue the person of God. Walk with him. If it says, go this way, go this way. If he says, go this way, go this way. If he says, go this way, go this way. If he says, stop, stop. Whatever he says, just walk in obedience. You're going to be blessed according to the way God describes blessings. Now, there are two imperatives that come in verses 14 and 15, the second half of 14 and, and verse 15. It says, have no fear of them, but it also says, nor be troubled. Have no fear. Have you ever tried to literally have zero fear? Like no fear whatsoever. Like you are walking in so much confidence, you don't care what's on the other side. Has you, have you ever had a moment... Uh, in which you could have, let's say, walk outside of a, of a building late at night, you're by yourself, and you hear some sounds. You hear the feet of other people walking behind you. Does it in any way give any level whatsoever of concern? If it doesn't, you're a cyborg. I, it does not mean that there should be no fear whatsoever, not even a hint, not even a scintilla of, 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 of fear. Now, what it means is this don't let fear drive you. Don't live life in light of your fear. Don't live life in light of the fear of those who could harm you. Practically speaking, I don't know what your boss looks like at work. Your boss may be a marvelous boss. She may be kind and sweet and gentle. She may be an ogre. I don't know. He may be. Uh, uh, intelligent, he may be uh, not so intelligent, this person may love God, they may not, I don't know what your boss looks like. However, what it's saying right here is don't be afraid to do the right thing at work, even though it might cost you on the job. Don't be afraid to do the right thing at school, even though your professor or teacher may ridicule you Ruthlessly. Don't be afraid to do the right thing on Friday nights, even though all of your friends around you will laugh hysterically for months at your prudishness. Don't be afraid to do the right thing, even though your spouse may see you as a moron. Don't be afraid to do the right thing, even though mom and dad may not get it. Don't ever be afraid to do the right thing. Don't fear them. Don't be troubled. It's only a slightly different version. I think the the main premise is the same, but I think what it means is this also. On the one hand, don't live in fear. On the other hand, don't worry. Don't, Don't think about all the possibilities of what might happen if you do the right thing. Just let it be. Let God handle the circumstances, the outcomes. Don't fear and don't be troubled. Instead, though, what should we do? In your hearts, honor Christ as uh, the Lord, the Lord as holy. Honor Christ means this. It means that we set apart Christ as the only one that we say, we're going to give you our full attention. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, all tied up in here. Set apart Christ as holy. He is in a category all by himself. Know that these folks can make life miserable for a temporary period of time. He has the power and the ability to, uh, to dictate uh, eternally what will happen to you. He is the judge. He is the one that separates the, the sheep from the goats. The good tares from the... He is the one who separates. So if you want to fear, fear in the rightful sense Jesus set him apart as holy in your hearts, meaning this, that we want to be driven by what it is that the Lord does. We want to be driven by this internal longing um, uh, uh, to obey Christ, not giving in to what we can see and choosing to walk by what it is that we believe is faith and trust. In verse 15, closes closes out, he tells us to always be prepared to give a response. And there's always a passage in Matthew that I've always wondered about. It comes to Matthew chapter 10, verse 19 says this, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now, what are we to do when Jesus says, don't sweat it, It's all going to happen on the spot. God's going to come in. He's going to swoop down in the moment. He's going to give you everything that you need to say. And Peter over here says, hey, wait a minute. Be prepared. Be prepared to know how you're going to respond when you get this question. Who should we believe, Jesus or Peter? We should believe them both. And they are not contradicting one another. Jesus is talking about some very specific circumstances. And he said, don't sweat it. There's no circumstance that's going to come upon you in which God is not going to have your back. Peter is saying, you ought to have a lifestyle of constant preparation. Jesus would say the same thing in other places. I want to be constantly prepared to give an answer to someone. Here's why it is that I have hope. Why do I have hope in this life that is to come? And I'm not sweating it so much over here. It's because of, how would you respond? How would you respond right now if someone asked you, you know, why, why do you not sweat life? Why does it not bother you when all of us poke fun of you? Why does it not bother you? In other parts of the world, they could say this. Why does it not bother you? Why, why do you still pursue God? Why have you not given up on God when it is that your family has been beaten ruthlessly? When your home has been taken away from you, why? Be prepared. What is your plan? Can I sum it up this way um, with three questions? Uh, How will you eagerly pursue good in your life? How do you plan to eagerly pursue good? How do you plan to trust Jesus? And how do you plan to share the reason for the hope that you have? We've got some training here that's been taking place for a while at Wildwood. And I know um, I have spoken with uh, many folks who are excited about it. I've spoken with others that uh, are not so excited about it. But the training is this. We want to give it to you, a tool that allows you to share the gospel. And you can just use your, your hand there. You can use your thumb and, and four fingers. And there's some little reminders that go a long way. I think it's a great tool. I have a, a different method that, uh, that I use. Um, but I learned this one and I find this one to be very, very good. I've, I've ripped some things off of it and used it even just in the last year. I was talking with a gentleman who uh, said, you know, here's I, here's the six reasons. Six. Six reasons I don't like the organization that you, you know, had that has your, your hand. You know, here's how to get a grasp on the gospel. Here's the six reasons. So I'd listen patiently. mean, well, that's a good points good points. Good. Yeah, it's good points. Good. Yeah. Got to the end. I said, man, that's thank you for that critique. And that's certainly something we want to ponder and consider. Can I ask you this? What is your plan? How do you share the gospel? He said, well, um, I said, when was the last time you shared the gospel? He said, uh, about six years ago. And I looked at him and smiled. And with the, the utmost respect, and I, I mean it because um, he's a, a man made in the image of God, just like okay, I'm no better or worse, et cetera, I, I just said, sir. Um, I like our bad plan much better than your no plan. What's your plan? How do you plan to pursue God? And when life and faith gets difficult, how do you plan to draw near to him? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. How do you plan to run to him? Verses 16 and 17 says that there is an internal peace for the Christian who simply obeys. When we don't violate our conscience, there's an internal peace that now comes uh, to us. Verse 17, I think in essence, is telling us that it's better to suffer persecution from man for doing good than it is to suffer the wrath of God for doing evil. Now, part that um, is really, really interesting. If you could memorize one verse in the scriptures that will remind you of exactly what it is that Christ has done on our behalf, I would commend to you verse 8 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. It might be the clearest and most succinct verse in all of the scriptures that tells us exactly what it is that Christ did on our behalf. Now, while there is some insider language, and what I mean by that is those that have grown up inside of a church will know the language a bit more. Um, uh, Mentally, put this one to memory. um, Dwell on it. Think on it. Do as the Old Testament recommends, uh, the New Testament as well, when we meditate on scriptures, just dwell. Think about what it is that God has done on our behalf. Verse 18, listen to how, how great he says this. For Christ suffered once for sins. It is the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Christ is the one who suffered. How many times did he suffer in this sacrifice while he suffered all throughout his lifetime? He suffered specifically right here. He's referring to on the cross when Jesus was lifted up vertically Before he breathed his last, he experienced the full wrath of God being poured down upon him. Why? Because of your sin. Because of my sin. It was not because of anything he did or did not do. It was because of what we did and did not do. Jesus, who is the only one who did not deserve to be on the cross, chose to go up on the cross and to receive from God what we should have had. How many times? Once. The sacrifice was only one time because it was the perfect sacrifice. Not a spot on him. An unblemished lamb that was sacrificed before God. He is the righteous. We are the unrighteous. It is the righteous that was doing this For the unrighteous. It was not the unrighteous begging and pleading somehow or another for the righteous to somehow accept us. It was the righteous saying, I'm going to do this on their behalf. I'm going to go and be active. They will be passive, righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. We don't go to God because we have lived such great lives. We don't go to God because we haven't missed a quiet time. We don't pray because we've had 40 consecutive days of prayer. Now God says, Whoa, you guys are awesome. We don't go to God simply because we come to church. The reason we go to God is because Jesus Christ brings us to God. Therefore, when we go to God, we don't go to God with all the stain of our sin. We don't go to God as beaten down worms, uh, rats in front of me. We go to God as dearly beloved children because Jesus is the one who takes us there. We are in Christ. All of our lives are absorbed by him. He takes all of our sin. All of his righteousness is given to us. And now we have the right to come before the almighty God and stand in his presence as, as a result of his invitation solely because of what Jesus has done. So Jesus does it put it to memory, dwell on it, think on it regularly. And when you get tempted to do like I do on either end of the spectrum, to think really good about my righteous deeds, I'm reminded of what Jesus has done. And when I get overwhelmed with my sin, I'm reminded of what Jesus has done. Either way, we need Christ. Put to death in the flesh, body, body dead on a Friday, came alive again on a Sunday. The spirit, however, was always alive. It is eternal. And then it says he goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison. Now, what in the world does he mean by this? And I am so thankful I have three and a half minutes left. I am going to tell us what I think he's saying, but I want you to hear this. Martin Luther wrote this. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Now I could read to you 10 others just like this. Bible scholar after Bible scholar after Bible scholar says this. I don't know exactly what he means. So let me give you a principle very quickly. The further one gets from the cross, the thinner the ice becomes. All issues pertaining specifically to justification, how we are made right with God, is made abundantly clear in the Scriptures over and over and over again. And I can tell you what I just told you there about about, uh, verse uh, 18. I can tell you that was thus saith the Lord. What I'm about to tell you here in verse 19 is thus saith David. I don't know exactly what this thing is saying, but here's what I think it means. I'm not even going to tell you all of the different ways that this thing has been interpreted historically over the years. I'm just going to tell you this. Three questions to ask. Who are the persons in uh, the spirits in prison? What did Christ preach and when did he preach? I think what he's referring to here is this. I think he is using language that is not to be taken literally. And I think what he's referring to here is this, that in the days of Noah, Noah uh, uh, was living and all this warning was given and all this warning was given to the people. Hey, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Destruction is coming. The earth is going to be flooded, et cetera, like that. And God, Jesus was preaching the Holy Spirit through Noah and the people there um, didn't listen. And what happened to them? They died in a flood. And those who were disobedient in that day, even those who have died even today, in days, day, and age, um, are, 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 are imprisoned, awaiting the judgment of Christ. And I think that he's referring here into the, just simply that, that Noah was preaching the message and it was not observed and heard. I don't think that it's saying here that Jesus somehow or another went into some sort of other netherworld, and then proclaimed, uh, and I, I think that's what he's getting at right here. What is being preached? It's the gospel. When did he preach it? In some ways we could say it's been preached all the way going back to the garden. Here's what I can tell you, what I think I'm confident, more confident over, he's saying in this passage, that we can celebrate the victory of Jesus. In verse 18, it tells us we can celebrate it in his death. In verses 19 through 20, it talks about his dissension or his proclamation. In verse 21, it tells us about his resurrection. He uses the analogy of Noah and about all the people and how were they saved. Notice this, the water did not save Noah. The boat saved Noah, correct? So he's not in here saying that water baptism is something that saves people. What he's pointing us to here is this, the boat would be symbolic towards Jesus. Jesus is the one who saves. In this particular case, um, uh, they were saved from the flood. Uh, Jesus' resurrection, I think is what he's referring to in verse 21. And then finally, in verse 22, which is where we end, it looks at his ascension. And what does he say? This is... Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Here's what I think Peter is trying to do with his readers, the initial readers that would have heard it in the day in which it was written, and even to us right now. I think he's trying to tell us this. Nobody likes suffering, and suffering is going to find you. It's just a matter of time. There's the natural part of suffering that we all experience, the human condition, but there's the specific kind of suffering. And if you live a life that truly is submitted to God, it is going to get in the way of your social life. If you live a life that is walking in obedience towards the person of Christ, if you are bowing the knee of submission, if you are saying, God, I will do whatever it is that you want to do, there is going to come a time in which you are going to experience some level of suffering. And if you never experience any suffering as a direct result of walking in obedience, you have every reason to question whether or not you're actually walking in obedience. So when it comes, keep in mind where Jesus is. We are always to look to him as the model, as the example. But remember where he is at this moment. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding on our behalf. Yes, he is there for us. Yes, he knows what it is that we've experienced. But please get this in your minds. Jesus Christ is ruling from on high. And there is nothing that will ever happen in this world to you personally or your friends or parents, etc., Nothing will ever happen that will threaten his sovereignty, his dominion, his ruling. So look to him and be comforted and know that just as he was raised from the dead, that he uh, stood um, uh, and mocked, if you will, death. And that kind of victory is what we will stand in. So stand firm right now. I know faith is hard. I know life is difficult. Stand firm. You will not be strong enough. Jesus will be strong enough for you. Since, Stephen J. Cole says this, since Christ bore witness to his suffering and was vindicated, we too can bear witness through suffering and trust God to vindicate us. Oh, my friends, suffering rarely feels good, but suffering often brings good. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We do thank you for your grace um, that you've extended to us. Father, today um, we read passages like this, some of which is difficult to interpret and understand. Some of it is just difficult to learn how to how to put it into practice. So I pray that today um, uh, you would minister to our very souls. Father, even at this moment, would you be with many, um, some this very weekend who have lost loved ones? Uh, Would you give us your presence um, once again? Um, Father, not only encourage us, um, but I pray that you would enable us Um, to walk alongside of you, to stand firm, and to trust you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.